Good morning. Please turn in your Bibles this morning to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. A couple weeks ago, we finished up 1 Thessalonians. Just by way of review, Paul founded the church in Thessalonica after he had been beaten and jailed in Philippi. Life in Thessalonica doesn't seem to have been much better. Paul's new church in Thessalonica eventually had to send Paul away for his own safety. But the believers in Thessalonica continued to face persecution. So when Paul got to Athens, he sent Timothy back to see how they were doing. Turns out, they were doing great. Not only surviving persecution, but thriving under persecution and spreading the gospel far and wide. So Paul sat down to write the letter we now know of as 1 Thessalonians to express his joy at how well the church was holding up, to answer some of the false charges his opponents were making against him, and to answer some of the Thessalonians' questions about the second coming of Jesus. Apparently, however, 1 Thessalonians didn't answer all their questions. So Paul wrote the letter we know of as 2 Thessalonians, to answer additional questions about the second coming of Jesus. We'll get into that more next week, but this morning, chapter 1 is just the introduction. Let's start by reading verses 1 to 4. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more, and the love all of you have for one another is increasing. Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. Let's pray. Lord, open our hearts and minds to what you have for us this morning out of your word. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. In verse 3, when Paul says, we ought always to thank God for you, that almost sounds like Paul is saying, we ought to be thanking God for you, but we really haven't been doing that. I'm quite sure that's not what Paul is saying. We know that because Paul goes on to give his reasons for thanking God for them. And I think this is just Paul's way of saying, we do always thank God for you, which is exactly what we ought to be doing. Paul then gives two reasons he gives for giving thanks for them. First, in verse 3, because your faith is growing more and more. Persecution and trials can have a couple of different effects. Trials and persecution can actually cause some people to fall away from the faith. In Matthew 13, Jesus told a parable about seed sowed on rocky ground. He said that symbolizes someone who receives the gospel with joy, but later falls away when trouble or persecution comes up. But that didn't happen with the Thessalonians. Peter, on the other hand, talks about how all kinds of trials uh, can result in the proven genuineness of our faith. And that's what's happening in Thessalonica. The genuineness of their faith is being demonstrated and for that, Paul gives thanks. Second, in verse 3, Paul thanks God for the love all of you have for one another is increasing. When Christians are suffering persecution, their differences no longer seem so big. 
For example, if you have two Christians in an Iranian prison, they aren't going to care about disagreements over the mode of baptism. They're just happy to have another Christian to pray with. In other words, trials and persecution can also have the effect of drawing Christians closer together. And that's what's happening in Thessalonica. In verse 5, Paul says, All this is evidence that God's judgment is right. In other words, the fact that your faith is growing and your love for each other is increasing is evidence that God's confidence in you, his judgment about you, was right all along. God knew, of course, how they would stand up under persecution, as they were in fact doing. Verse 5 continues, And as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. Now, wait a minute. I thought no amount of good works would make us worthy of God's grace, right? We are saved by grace through faith and not by any works we have done. Isn't that what Paul himself teaches over and over again? So is Paul contradicting himself? Of course not. There's a difference between positional worthiness, which theologians call positional sanctification, and practical worthiness, which theologians call practical sanctification. Positional worthiness or sanctification is the idea found in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that Jesus took our sin to the cross and God sees believers through the lens of Jesus' perfect righteousness. That's positional worthiness or sanctification. But on a down-to-earth practical level, we all still fail and need to continue to grow in our faith. The Thessalonians' growing faith and their increasing love for each other is evidence that they are genuine Christians. In other words, that they have been counted worthy of God's kingdom. But that doesn't let persecutors off the hook. In fact, Paul has some very harsh things to say about those who persecute God's people. Verses 6 and 7 say, God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled, and to us as well. Many today think of God as as so kind and loving and understanding that he would never pour out his wrath on anyone. But Paul says he will pay back the trouble to those who trouble us. Paul's just teaching what the Old Testament taught. In Deuteronomy 32, God said, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and repay those who hate me. Isaiah 35 says that God will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. So when will this happen? Verses 7 and 8 continue. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Wow. This is a different image of Jesus. Most people today seem to have an image of Jesus as Jesus meek and mild, the epitome of all love, compassion, understanding, and tolerance. But Paul says he will come back in blazing fire with his powerful angels to punish those who do not know God. I once saw a bumper sticker that said, Jesus is coming back, and boy is he ticked. And there's a lot of truth in that. Notice that in verse 8, Paul says that God will punish those who don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. 
Well, we usually think of the gospel as something to be believed. And it is, but as I've said dozens of times before, saving faith is not just believing certain doctrines about Jesus. It's not just trusting that he's going to take you to heaven. Saving faith is a heart of dedication, commitment, or loving devotion to Jesus that genuinely wants to please him and follow him. If you really don't have any interest in obeying Jesus, you are not one of his. And that's why Paul can talk about those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus as if it was the same thing as those who don't believe. Because the two go together hand in glove. Genuine faith always produces fruit. Paul explains further in verses 9 and 10. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among those who have believed. This includes you, because you believed our testimony to you. Now, there are some people who believe in a doctrine called annihilationism. This is the idea that hell is not eternal and that unbelievers will just cease to exist someday. They use verse 9 as a proof text. When Paul says they will be punished with everlasting destruction, annihilationists say unbelievers will be destroyed in the sense that they will cease to exist and their non-existence will be everlasting. Now, to be honest with you, I find that to be a very appealing teaching, and I wish it were true. In Matthew 25, however, Jesus says that the unrighteous will go away into eternal punishment, while the righteous will inherit eternal life. If eternal life is eternal, then eternal punishment must be eternal also. Paul concludes his introduction with prayer for the Thessalonians in verses 11 and 12. With this in mind, we constantly pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling, and that by his power he may bring to fruition your every desire for goodness and your every deed prompted by faith. We pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, first, Paul prays that God would make them worthy of his calling. In other words, that God would continue to use the persecution and trials to increase their faith toward God and their love toward others. And second, Paul prays that God would bring to fruition your every desire for goodness and your every deed prompted by faith. Paul knows, of course, that true believers really do have a desire for goodness a desire to live lives pleasing to God. And that faith prompts good deeds. And Paul prays that God would continue to bring that to fruition in their life. And finally, Paul prays that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him. God is glorified by how we grow in our faith and how we increase in our love for others and how we persevere in persecution and the trials of life and, of course, our highest desire should be to bring glory to our Lord. So what can we learn from this passage? Well, first, on a practical level, Paul begins this letter commending his church in Thessalonica for their growing faith, their increasing love for each other, 
and their perseverance in all the trials they are enduring. In fact, Paul even says he boasts about them to others. And I feel the same way about you. In fact, I have often boasted about you to other pastors. I praise God for you who are growing in the faith. I praise God for the love and unity I see in this church. And I praise God for those of you who have, have gone through overwhelming trials of life and still remain strong in the faith. Second, on a more theological level, I'm tempted to write a book and call it The God Nobody Wants, but I'm afraid it would be a book that almost nobody reads. It would be a book about the wrath of God. Our passage this morning pictures Jesus as coming from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels to punish with everlasting punishment those who have rejected him. That's the wrath of God. One reason people today don't like this view of God very much is because we're coming from a very American perspective. But if you were a Christian in Nigeria, for example, your perspective may be different. If you had personally witnessed entire churches burned to the ground with your family and friends screaming inside, if you had lived through your daughters or, kid, or granddaughters being kidnapped and sold into slavery, subject to every kind of imaginable atrocity, you might just view God's wrath a bit differently. You might long for the time when God in his wrath would give you justice for the horrors you experienced at the hands of godless men. As far back as 1952, when Bill Bright wrote, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, theologians and pastors have focused almost exclusively on God's love. They have almost completely ignored the major biblical doctrine of the wrath of God. I guarantee you that the message to the people in Noah's time was not that God has a wonderful plan for your life. Nor did he have a wonderful plan for the Canaanites or the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. Deuteronomy 29-28, Moses warned the children of Israel that if they turned away from God, God would uproot them from their land in anger and fury and great wrath. Joshua, 1 Samuel, 2 Kings, 2 Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Job, Psalms, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Micah, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah all speak of God's wrath. In fact, I counted well over a hundred references to the wrath of God in the Old Testament. But contrary to what most people seem to believe, the wrath of God is not just found in the Old Testament. John the Baptist asked the crowds, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Jesus warned that it's better to go through life maimed than to be thrown with two hands, feet, and eyes into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Jesus warned people not to fear those who could kill the body, but rather fear God who can destroy both body and soul in hell. On numerous occasions, he warned of eternal fire and of weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's the wrath of God. Everyone knows how God so loved the world that he gave his son. But most people don't realize that the same chapter that says this also says, whoever does not obey the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on them. 
Paul also speaks of the wrath of God. In Romans 2, for example, Paul says that because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourselves on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment is revealed. The Apostle John also speaks of God's wrath. Revelation 14 refers to those who follow the Antichrist in the last time, saying that those who worship the beast and receive his mark will, quote, drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured out full strength into the cup of his wrath. I fear that by only focusing on God's love, pastors have lulled an entire generation of people into the false complacency of imagining an all-tolerant, all-accepting God who is okay with their sinful lifestyles. They will face this God in terror at the final judgment. But doesn't all this wrath contradict the doctrine of the love of God? Not at all. We are not free to rip the idea of God's love out of its broader context and make it mean whatever we want it to mean. As if the love of God means that God would never send anyone to hell. Or as if the love of God means that God is perfectly okay and accepting of sinful lifestyles. Nonsense. The Bible itself defines God's love. John 3.16 says God so loved the world that he gave his only son. God's love for humanity is expressed in the giving of his son on the cross. In Romans 5.8, Paul says, God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The love of God is expressed not in his tolerance for sin, but in the fact that while we were yet sinners, Christ came and submitted himself to torture on a Roman cross to save us from the consequences of our own sin and rebellion. An illustration of how that love works is found in the Old Testament book of Exodus. God was about to pour out his wrath on the Egyptians and even Jews who rejected him by slaying every firstborn. But in love, God provided protection. Sacrifice a lamb as a substitute, smear its blood over the doorposts of your house, and have the lamb for supper. Then don't leave the house overnight. That's it. That's how you would show your belief and allegiance to the God of Israel. And God would pass over that house, and everyone inside would be saved from God's wrath. The New Testament uses that story as an illustration of what Jesus does for us. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says, Jesus is our Passover lamb who was sacrificed for us. The idea is that those of us who have repented of our sin and committed our hearts and lives to Jesus in faith come into his household through the doorpost smeared with his blood and remain under his protection from the wrath of God at the final judgment. Imagine standing before that great judgment seat of God and Satan brings up the whole list of accusations against us. Every one of our sinful words, actions, thoughts, and attitudes. And remember, Jesus said we would give account for every thoughtless word we've ever spoken. And Satan says, look, God, look at this long list. This person rightly deserves to be condemned for their long history of rebellion against you. Turn them over to me. Jesus, our defense attorney, says, Father, I paid their penalty. They are covered by my blood. They are under my protection. 
And God says the penalty is paid. The case is dismissed. Welcome into the joy of your Lord. That's what the grace and love of God is all about. But those who reject that love stand outside of Christ's protection and will face the terrible wrath of God for their own sin. Hebrews 10.31 warns that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And by the way, their ultimate sin is the fact that although the creator of heaven and earth himself became human and allowed himself to be tortured for them in their place, they treated this unfathomable expression of divine love as if it were nothing. And they go about their lives as if they couldn't be bothered to return that love. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this church. I thank you for their growing faith, for their love and unity, and for their perseverance for you in the trials of life. But Lord, if there is one here this morning who has not committed their heart and life to you, don't give them rest until they come to you. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.